everyone. We have a very special treat for you on this musical episode of the Name Drop San Diego podcast. Award-winning and world-renowned composer Lei Liang is our guest, and he's kindly offered to let us play some of his music for you. We're really thrilled to share it. I'm Abby Hamblin with my co-host Christy Totten. Lei Liang is a Chinese-born American composer who has won some of the biggest prizes in the world for music. That includes recently being selected as a 2021 winner of the prestigious American Academy of Arts and Letters Music Awards. He's also a member of the faculty at UC San Diego and has locally collaborated to bring science and technology into his work with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the Qualcomm Institute and other groups. Before we get into talking to Lei about his fascinating work and life story, we wanted to set the tone with a clip from his orchestral work, A Thousand Mountains, A Million Streams, which won the prestigious 2021 Grauemeyer Award for Music Composition. of events and performances on your calendar for 2020 all over the country and even the world and so we thought we'd start by asking did you end up getting to do some of those um, performances and events virtually or how did you spend um, some of that time over this last pandemic uh, year oh yeah what a well what a terrible year but in the end uh we were finally coming out of it you know it's uh uh, it was tough, actually, you know, uh, with all those things that was going on, I think music, it's the thing that kind of kept us going. You know, I had this conversation with some dear friends, um, with all those, you know, uh, terrible things that's going around and the anxiety, the fear, and, you know, just uh, lots of concerns and worries. Um, uh, I feel really happy that I still could manage to, to uh, do some work with my friends and collaborators. And, uh, sometimes it's just weekly meetings. We do it on Zoom. Uh, uh, sometimes it's just collaboration. We, we, we discuss things, we get together, and it's like a real recharge every time I could meet with my friends and collaborators. And uh, I think that was the thing that kind of kept us going. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing how important that was. So like I've mentioned to my friends that this, you know, music is the one thing that gave me solace uh, throughout this process. So yeah, it, it was, uh, music was really a powerful, powerful kind of a, uh, uh, like a medicine for me uh, uh, over the last year. Yeah, how did it help you? Were there particular pieces of music you turned to? Or are you talking more about writing your own? Yeah, it was, um, I remember uh, some of these collaborations really resulted in, in uh, recordings. For example, my dear friend, uh, the, the uh, uh, amazing double bass and composer uh, player, uh, a composer and double bass player, uh, Mark Dresser, my colleague at UCSD. Um, he took several months to record the piece I wrote for him. And it was all done remotely. Uh, he was basically uh, locked <laughs> in, in his own office and, and did all these things remotely uh, with the engineer and 
and he kept going back to these files and sending me things to, to review. And, oh, it was amazing. I mean, we managed to do this. It, luckily, it was a solo piece, so he could do it. Um, you know, it didn't involve more than just himself. Um, and um, it was so uh, amazing to go through that process. And knowing Mark is so dedicated to, to anything he does. And I can never forget, it was on his birthday that he sent me the final mix of this piece. You know, <laughs> <He was> just, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, what, what, how telling is that about him? You know, a gift to you. Yeah. <laughs> for his own birthday, he was working months and months and finally get them and got to tell the recording is so magical. And I think uh, the music changed. Uh, he has played this piece for a long time. And when he was doing this recording, I, I thought I heard things I've never heard before. Um, I think a lot of these experience, you know, uh, all of us are survivors, right? We survived this pandemic mm -hmm. and um, so many other things as well. And all these things went into the music and it only make the music more powerful. So that was just one example. It, it was just, uh, the, when I think about the pandemic, you know, this is the thing that came to my mind is that I experienced this remotely with my dear friend, Mark Dresser, and our music was transformed. This way of working actually took our music to, to a different kind of depth, uh, um, took it to a different level for us. And um, uh, it was beautiful. And, uh, and other things I did, uh, uh, I would uh, uh, recall those moments when I uh, got together with my team, we were doing um, collaborations, uh, musicians and computer music artists. And, and oceanographers, uh, we, were, we were doing these uh, research projects and uh, uh, those weekly meetings are the things that we were looking forward to every week, you know, just because, yeah, we sit together in Zoom room and, and, <laughs> and I think the air is electrifying, even though it's just Zoom air, you know, <laughs> we just feel uh, everyone is so excited and we feel so recharged uh, at the end of each meeting, inspired, uh, ready to go, you know. And that lasted uh, for several months when we had those meetings until we finished that phase of the project. It was great. It was, um, uh, you know, a time that I had to, it's almost like homeschooling, you know, uh, my child. And uh, that was before the online learning really uh, 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 met its expectations. You know, like uh, there was a time that was really hard and, you know, uh, 
dealing with all these things um, and and facing, you know, some of my students were going through very difficult challenges. You know, it's not easy for them to be locked in a dorm room for several months. You know, it's it's um, it's hard. Uh, so those are the issues we're dealing with. Yet, hey, when we are doing music, when we have the Zoom meeting and continue to make progress, oh, it's great. So I, I don't think that maybe a lot of composers could describe working on a project with a, a, a someone in oceanography or multiple people in oceanography. <laughs> Would you mind describing the project that you've been working on? Yeah, you know, um, I think it's not a new idea for composers to be inspired by nature, right? Like we have, um, uh, you know, famous pieces like Four Seasons by Vivaldi, you know, we have by Lamar, by Debussy, and, and Tchaikovsky, all these uh, people who have been inspired by, by nature, you know, Beethoven, we, we can think a lot of examples. But I always, always feel, you know, we're living in 2021. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a different time, and we understand nature uh, in ways that our predecessors didn't, right? Um, for example, whales. <laughs> there are a lot of times that probably uh, people didn't even realize uh, the whales are singing, uh, and and uh, dolphins were using these sounds, you know, for echolocations and, you know, communications and stuff. So it's, um, uh, now we have the tools and we, our scientists are doing all these research that, uh, that inspire us and teach us a lot about, uh, you know, our planet, our home. So um, in a way, uh, I kind of think of, uh, uh, we have new role models, you know, we used to think of the three, three great bees that, you know, very traditional way of thinking, you have Bach, you have Beethoven, you have Brahms, the three great bees, you know. Um, but now I think of uh, the three great, great bees for me are, you know, beluga whales and bowhead <laughs> and bearded seals. <laughs> That's so, so cool. They make really amazing sounds. And um, I gotta say, uh, uh, our collaborator, uh, these are, uh, uh, a team of people who have been studying uh, uh, the whale sound, the whale acoustic led, led by Professor John Hildebrand and um, uh, one of our closest collaborators, the PhD students of his, um, Josh Jones, Dr. Jones, he, he got his PhD uh, earlier this year. So we, over the last two or three years, we've been uh, having a lot of conversations. They share with us sounds that were uh, recorded um, uh, in the Arctic. Uh, they place these hydrophones, you know, these recording equipments that can be placed on the bottom of the seafloor uh, and, uh, and just record 24-7, uh, uh, you know, at some of the quietest corners in the world, uh, places where we, we never uh, imagined what kind of sound existed, right? And they will be able to get, you know, a year worth of recording uh, at a time, uh, these data that can be shared with us. And, oh gosh, you know, the sounds. Um, when I think about it, I, I get goose pimples, you know, it's like, oh, it's amazing. For example, when I first heard the ice, the ice uh, that are being formed, the oh. new ice, mm -hmm. and ice storms, um, and the different kind of cracking, and oh, sometimes you feel like, are you listening to some weird electronic music going on? You know, right? Wow, <laughs> it's actually ice. <laughs> well, 
question I have for you is like how much, you know, so you take these raw nature sounds, how much do you have to manipulate them for them to be considered music? Mm. Yeah, no, I'm right now, I actually don't think that I'm composing it. Uh, mm. I'm just learning, you know, because, uh, <laughs> you know, since, since I was little, uh, I went through music trainings and it's more like conservatory style music trainings, you know, lots of counterpoint, uh, orchestration, you know, all these things, the sonata forms, you learn all these things. And um, now I feel like it's a time for me to really uh, uh, retool myself and relearn uh, because finally these sounds are available to us and there's so much for us to to uh, digest and to analyze, to understand. Um, so a lot of what we do, our team, um, we, uh, we try to restore the sound to its most pristine condition so we can hear them really well. Um, the sound came with a lot of noise, <laughs> including man-made mm. noise. For example, the hydrophone, you know, it, uh, it's hooked up to cable, so the cable makes sounds when the water's, you know, blowing and, and disturbed. Um, you have to remove those. Um, there's also uh, computer sound, because the uh, computer would, would reboot itself uh, every few minutes, uh, and that, that makes a sound. Uh, and so we, we have to try to clean up, but you have to be careful about what you're cleaning up, because if you don't know what you're cleaning up, you might have gotten rid of some really important information in the file. Mm -hmm. some, some of those things that sound really like machine made sound or you know weird computer noise actually was ice <laughs> yeah. we didn't know that so that's why we need to work very closely with uh people like josh jones and you know he he listens to this all the time and and he he spent so many months just listening to this um so he could tell us what he's hearing and we have often have to go back several times to clean up the size, so-called cleanup, but actually you really have to be careful. You know, we have a system removing certain things. And then in the end, we have to compare, do you clean up by, you know, 25% noise reduction or 50% or up to 100%, right? And then we compare the results. Uh, it's a very laborious process. And, oh, the beautiful thing is at the end, I felt like all those training I got since I was a kid, about your training and and uh, and uh, dictation and all of that actually paid off <laughs> because yeah. give you good years and you kind of really listen <laughs> and you can notice those things and it's uh, yeah it's uh, it's very educational uh, the entire experience. Well, how did you how did you originally get into music? What, did it come naturally to you? Was it you know very young age? How did you find music? Oh, yeah. So uh, I was uh, born in China. Uh, I, I grew up in Beijing. My parents are both musicologists, you know, they're music historians. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I was very, very lucky. I uh, was uh, raised in, a, I think it's a, a musical archive, basically. <laughs> it's a, wow. a research institute uh, of music in China. And this is the place where uh, some of the most important historical recordings, books and, and instruments are preserved. So I grew up there. And so since I was a kid, I was exposed to music that, um, yeah, uh, very, very precious recordings that not many people had access to. Of course, I didn't really understood their importance when I was a kid. But because of my parents are musicians, so I, 
I was kind of forced into the trade. You know,、mm -hmm. since I was four, I was practicing <laughs> the piano, and I really didn't like it.、Uh, just practicing scales was so boring for me. So, so since I was about six, I started composing my own pieces, uh, and uh, uh, it was just because I was bored. I, I wanted to do something else, and my parents were very lenient. They said, "Okay, as long as you are making sound on the piano for half an hour a day." Uh, we will give you a reward.、Uh, at that time, I, I really love collecting stamps, so they give me a stamp as a reward. And for those stamps, I I just make sounds on the piano for half an hour, and、uh, <laughs> so you know pretty quickly, you know, instead of practicing etudes that I was given, I was making up my own etudes that kind of sounded like what I was given. <laughs> so yeah,、uh, that's how I started, and I wrote a lot of pieces for animals because I、uh, love going to the zoo.、Oh. And、uh, yeah, and it's.、Uh, Music was a way for me to write journals, so you know other kids they probably paint or write about their experience. And for me, it was just I would make a musical drawing. You know, I I would I would uh, uh, write about the animals I saw at the zoo. So there's a collection of my pieces that I composed,、uh, you know,、uh, since I was six, and 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 most of them are animals, and gradually became like imaginative. Animals, animals I've never seen. You know, so wow. Well, it's obvious that you know nature has influenced your work in a lot of ways. But we also read that you were a student protester、uh, in Tiananmen Square protests, and and we read an interview from about a decade ago that said,、uh, you said you feel like everything you do is motivated by that experience. Is that still the case? Oh yeah. I mean, I was fifteen, and、um, uh, I was going to the、uh, Central Conservatory、uh, Prep School. Every day,、um, that's where I went to high school, and Tiananmen Square was、uh, Tiananmen Square is just uh, uh, you know several blocks from us.、Uh, I, I don't it it you know it's walking distance. We we um uh not terribly close, but it's it's pretty close. I you know we were all on bicycle at that time, and you can't imagine what that would do to to somebody who's you know fifteen.、Uh, you know that idealism. Uh, uh, I. Yeah, I experienced Beijing.、Uh, I felt I truly fell in love with Beijing because of that experience, because of the people. You know,、um, until that time, I was basically just a student, you know,、uh, studying, and I didn't really have so so much interaction with, let's say, workers. You know, people from different walks of life.、Uh, but Tiananmen Square during that time brought everyone together, right? And、um, Oh, it was it was such a bonding experience with the citizens of Beijing. So,、um, and you can imagine after what we went through,、um, yeah, I really didn't want to leave Beijing. I I love its people, and、uh, they're my heroes. You know,、um, so、uh, I left Beijing because my parents were, you know, they had gone through the Cultural Revolution, and they they were very concerned about you know not only my safety but also my future, whether whether I could. Really study, you know. We were having political lessons and confession, you know, forced confession lessons every day, you know. And um, so um, uh, it was uh, because of a uh, wonderful uh, American lady、uh, by the name of June Rose Garrett.、Uh, she she was teaching uh, English uh, uh, back in the eighties in Beijing, and she attended a concert of mine.、Uh, I think、uh, I was thirteen. Or something like that. I, I give a concert、um, of my own works, and、um, and she kept in touch. She she、uh, she also、uh, knows my family, my、uh, 
my relatives uh, here in the States. So she found a um, school for me to attend uh, uh, in Austin, Texas. Uh, and um, uh, so I came, I came here on my own and um, started this new phase of my life. And it's very interesting. I think it was uh, in America that I discovered China, <laughs> finally. <laughs> It, it just sounds a little uh, ironic that way, but it's true. You know, I, uh, I mean that I, I was able to discover my cultural past because I left China. Um, when I was growing up in China, my, my uh, uh, access to traditional Chinese knowledge was very limited. You know, we, we, I've never been to an open shelf library, for example, in China. Uh, oh. I think things are much better now, but, but when I was a student, no, there's no open shelf library. Um, I couldn't really read classics or Chinese. And a lot of things I was missing from my education. And when I came to Austin, Texas, I just went to the University of Texas. Yeah. I was a high school student, but nobody was stopping me from going into those open shelf libraries. And oh my God, the first day I went into the East Asian collection, I just, you know, it was one of the happiest days of my life. I could see books printed, you know, in mainland China, books printed in Taiwan, they were printed in traditional Chinese characters. And of course, tons of English books on China. And it was then I realized, oh, you know, China, my homeland, or a concept of my home, that's actually something I can construct by knowledge. You know, it's something that I need to work hard to reconstruct for myself what it is, because I was taught in a certain way, but there's a lot more resources, a lot more viewpoints then if I work, if I study, I can construct my own personal version of China. And that's why I felt like I discovered China after I left. Yeah, well, and now your work is being, is described as fusing together the sort of Eastern and Western traditions. You know, what does that actually mean in composing and to you as, um, you know, being someone who works in music? Yeah, see, this is, <laughs> it's a very deep question. Um, I feel that, um, you know, there are easy ways to go about it. Um, let's say um, you can just put a label on it. You know, uh, I, uh, I sometimes regard um, uh, putting some, let's say a well-known Chinese melody or something like that as an easy way to put a label on something. Okay. Uh, and I always uh, encourage my student to, to um, <laughs> take, take a different route, to, to take a more challenging route. Uh, uh, for one, you know, <laughs> when you take a melody, uh, an existing melody, uh, you didn't create it. <laughs> so that's just being lazy, you know. Uh, it's much harder to come up with your own melodies, right? Yeah. <laughs> a beautiful song. Why is it so beautiful? You know, you try to write your own, you realize how hard it is, you know. But of course, it's, it's no work if you just take it and put it in your music. So, uh, so that's one thing. But... Um, but there's something else I'm, I'm looking for. I, I feel like if we want to really think about these things, uh, writing music gave us a chance to really ask ourselves, um, if you like something, let's say you like a melody, if you like a certain genre, if you like a certain instrument, um, when you write your own music, that's the chance for you to really ask yourself why I love this thing so much. What is it in it that, that you want to be able to understand in this creative process. Um, it's almost like analyzing a recipe. You know, you're mm. given this good 
fish. And then you kind of, oh, what is in it? What makes, ah, there's this little flavor in there. That's the magic touch, you know? So as a musician, as a composer, you have to really understand what, what is that magic touch, you know? Uh, and that's really exciting, you know? It's, uh, it's not only more difficult, but it's much more rewarding. And, and for me, it's just challenging and fun, you know, to try to figure it out. Um, so uh, writing music has become a, a way for us to reflect and to understand ourselves even better. Uh, and on that basis, you can create something uh, that is based on your understanding, not just you know, taking something uh, and, and insert it uh, somewhere in your music and take credit for it. <laughs> I, I feel like that's, a, that's highly problematic for me. <laughs> We have more questions about your work and what drives you, but uh, we wanted to sneak in a lightning round where we ask you just sort of quick, somewhat random questions. So let's get okay. started. Let's get started with that. My first question for you is, uh, what is your favorite mainstream music? Oh, so much. I mean, I, I listen to all kinds of things. Um, uh, recently, uh, I've been uh, listening to uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, this Japanese group called uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, because I like his film music a lot, and uh, and uh, and I like his use of harmony, and uh, you know, the singers in this group are not really a good singer per se, but, <laughs> but somehow, you know, oh, they might be listening. So wonderful, you know. What's that? I'm sorry. Oh, I was just kidding. I said, you know, they might be listening, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just being, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm admiring that, you know, like we're all given a certain kind of gifts, you know, and, and you know, uh, certain things I know I can't do very well. Yeah, it doesn't mean that that's a total disadvantage, mm -hmm. you know, you can still kind of turn around and put in the right context. It could be a very charming thing. Like when I listen to their songs, yeah, they don't have these big, you know, uh, dominating melodies that you just want, but they probably resort to something like you can, you can talk through your music. So instead of like singing it, you can almost feel like you're in a more intimate kind of conversation with a the singer. They're talking to you, you know? And that's a beautiful thing. I love it. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so I have all kinds of things that I listen to in my car when I drive and, and just give me wonderful things to think about. Nice. Yeah. Um, what was your child favorite childhood toy? Oh, you know, I have a special thing. My grandfather made a book for me. Um, I grew up uh, when, you know, it was in the, I was born in the early 70s and 1970s and, and there was not even like colored uh, children books, uh, let alone like toys for children. Um, there's, you know, the, the things are, you know, materialistically, it was just so scarce, right? And my grandfather, he got his PhD from Columbia University and he went back to China. He has seen the West and he wanted me to have a, a, you know, in his mind, a more nourishing childhood. And he, he knew the power of images and colors for children, right? So he bought a bunch of magazines that are printed color because they're propaganda magazines. But, you know, in those propaganda pictures, there's still flowers and things like that, right? And cars. And so he, he made a book by cutting those images and made a children book for myself. Uh, for wow. me and, yeah, and so I still amazing. keep it I still have it yeah it's just very touching for me you know the only way I could see some dolphins for example and flowers 
those are the things that, uh, yeah, uh, I, I just feel like open this book, I, I feel so much love for my grandfather. It's incredible. And clearly you come from such a, a creative family. <laughs> what is the last book you read? The last book? Oh, uh, this gets a little deeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am, I'm fascinated by a Chinese artist who painted some of the most amazing landscape paintings when he was blind, mm. when oh. he was 87 years old. And he was also one of the most important scholars on Chinese paintings. It was, uh, uh, I think it's just two years ago, a collection of his um, uh, writings were published in China. Uh, seven big, you know, hefty volumes and altogether about two million characters that he wrote. And um, I was reading some of the essays he wrote about Chinese, uh, uh, you know, just landscape painting histories. And they're so interesting. Um, his, his commentaries on, on these uh, uh, great masters of the past are so illuminating. I, yeah, I, I learned a great deal. I, I can't put this book down. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, what a talented person. I'd love to see some of those. Um, this yeah. is a hard one to answer in a lightning round, um, <laughs> but what do you feel like is the greatest uh, life lesson you've learned? Oh, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I was a student at Harvard, um, I used to go, you know, Harvard Square. Uh, that's, where, you know, I, that's where I take my buses every day. And I noticed there's one person uh, selling the Harvard Square newspaper, uh, uh, probably somebody who just needs some cash and, and doing his work. And I remember him using a very big, warm, you know, uh, perhaps a voice you know, accosting everybody that passed by and hello to everyone and, you know, asking people how they're doing and, and selling his newspaper. And he always was the first one was able to get his stack of newspapers sold. Uh, he might be a homeless actually, you know, just this is this is the newspaper in Harvard Square that they use that to, to help people who, who, are, who have, yeah, who are homeless. And, and I remember watching him from the bus and I was thinking to myself, you know, even if you, are in such difficult, you know, moment in your life, you might be homeless, you might be, you know, begging people to buy, you still have to keep your heads up. And you still have to um, exude that kind of, exude, you know, uh, exudes that kind of warmth and, and don't lose who you are. And because of that, you might have hope. You know, and I, yeah. I learned a great lesson from watching him mm -hmm. selling yeah. newspaper. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I wonder it, if, if he, if he knew he ever had that impact, like I'm sure he didn't, but that it just goes to show you, yeah. even, you can even have an impact on someone you don't even know. Yeah. He wouldn't know, but he was just working hard to, yeah. to, uh, to make a living and, and, but he did it with passion and um, yeah, I admire that. I admire that energy and, so yeah, I, I would say that was that was a lesson I learned. It's funny you asked me this question; he came to my mind right away. Mm. <laughs> Is there a place you like to go to in San Diego just to listen to sounds? Oh yeah, yes. Um, I love to go into uh, you know I, I go to the beach. Uh, that's one thing. I also love to hear uh, streams, uh, mm. waterfalls. So I'm actually trying to check things out, like where are the places I can listen to waterfalls? I take my son for long walks. We have a favorite place in Palm Springs um, that I would love to hear the streams there. I record those sounds. Those are some of the most beautiful pieces of music for me. 
Um, but I'm still trying to figure out what is that place in San Diego where I can just listen to a quiet waterfall. So to be discovered. Okay, oh. we'll check back. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe this is the book from your grandfather, but do you feel like you have a most prized possession? Oh, that would definitely be one of those. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, that would be it. Um, yeah, it's funny. Like, you know, I I have I have a Gravelmeyer medal. <laughs> yeah, and things like that. <laughs> that's yeah, a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty cool, you know. Yeah. But when you think about it, is that thing that your grandfather made with his hand? Mm-hmm. That's more important, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. That's great. Uh, because after all, you know, who are we? You know, without family, uh, without knowing that somebody cares about you, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I still communicate to him from time to time. Uh, um, yeah, it it is that 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 make me who I am. So I would say, <laughs> yeah, that book is probably the most important for me. Okay. Okay. Final lightning round question: What uh, do you think your job would be if you were not a composer? Hmm. You know, I love teaching and um, I, yeah, I probably would do something with uh, paintings <laughs> because that's another thing like I'm crazy about. So um, yeah, it's, I, I, could, I could imagine myself, you know, uh, really uh, be a, you know, just, just somebody uh, somehow either a scholar or, or artist uh, related to painting. Very nice. Awesome. So in your, in your music, let's get back to, um, you know, composing, um, one of your latest, we were really interested to read about one of your latest works, which was about, um, it's called inheritance, um, about Mm. Sarah Winchester, the heir to the famous Winchester gun fortune. Um, we read one review, which described it as having a ghostly mix of Eastern, Western, and African percussion. And I know there were actually ghosts involved in this performance. I just, I wonder what draws you to your stories. We also know you've done, um, you know, some sort of US-Mexican border um, inspired work. So how do you choose the topics that you sort of dive into? You know, you've had underwater, you've had just so many interesting inspirations, but how do you find those and how do you choose what to pursue? Yeah, you know, sometimes I just feel like there are things that are inevitable. You you must do it, right? Um, uh, for example, this Winchester story. Um, living in America, uh, you know, now I've been uh, thirty years, you know, and I've been, you know, impacted also by by gun violence, the news, uh, you know, especially after after the pandemic is finally facing out. You we're kind of returning to the normal, it's terrible normal of gun violence. And um, uh, when I when I was thinking about these issues uh, a few years ago, I, I just felt that as artists, you know, we uh, we're doing our things uh, in our music departments, and we're experimenting a lot of interesting techniques and new forms and all that. But also, we have important things to say because there are important things that's going on in the world, and we are part of that conversation as well. You know. Uh, Earlier, I talked about you know how scientists have inspired me. Yes, we gotta respond to nature uh, with the knowledge we have today, uh, and that's how we uh, become part of that important conversation about global warming and all of that. Uh, and gun violence uh, is another thing that uh, we must respond to. Uh, um, and 
but you have to do it artfully, you know. And this story, when when I first heard about it, I just felt um, it 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 kind of embodies all that complexity and richness and you know contradictions um, that the gun violence and you know that complex relationship that we have um, with gun violence. So. Uh, the story, you know, Sarah Winchester, if you don't know it, um, it's, um, it's actually uh, not only that she inherited this tremendous wealth from Gamala, she also inherited a lot of guilt. She felt haunted uh, by the ghosts uh, that were killed by her late husband's guns. And so she was hiding herself in, in this mansion, uh, trying to build room after room, you know, with doors leading to nowhere and windows that, you know, open up. Uh, to the floor. This is just really, really weird play. But she's also so talented and intelligent. Um, she was a self-taught architect. Uh, she was a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, she was uh, familiar with European literature. She had one of the greatest, I think the greatest collection of French literature on the West Coast <laughs> in her lifetime. And the story that touched me the most is that when she died, uh, her servants rushed to her safe. You know, she always carried that key to the safe with her. Nobody knew what it was, what was in it. And it was a safe within the safe within the safe, you know, typical of her. And when they opened it, there was no money, there was no contract. It was just two locks of hair. It was her late husband and her dead daughter. Um, wow. Very, very, you know, um, human, you know, the way that uh, her story touched me. So uh, in many ways, I feel like we are also trapped in a house like that, and we're haunted by this. Uh, but we also, like her, you know, are looking for ways out. So um, it, it was just a powerful story. And I work with my very dear friend, Matt Donovan. He and I, uh, we, we both won the Rome Prize <laughs> 10 years ago. So we, we, we shared, you know, one delightful year together, uh, living in the same complex. We had coffee almost every week together. So we talked a lot about these issues. And he wrote this beautiful libretto and so musical. Uh, so yeah, it, it was just uh, one of those projects I felt I have to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I must do it. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of those projects, I mean, you've had so much success. You have many awards, including earlier this year. Uh, you got one from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, um, but you're still breaking barriers. You know, what are some of those projects you're looking forward to doing in the future that, as you said, you you have to do? Yeah, no. So uh, I'm just beginning to uh, start my own uh, creative work uh, responding to uh, the Arctic Ocean, you know, I was mentioning to you earlier. Um, so that's one project I want to do. And the other one, I'm already beginning to have a collaborative relationship with a Professor Amy Chin, also a Script Institutional Oceanographer. Uh, she's a geologist. So, you know, from hearing oceans or hearing seascapes, as I call it, uh, now we're moving towards hearing Earth. And this is a larger project that uh, uh, I, I uh, collaborate also with uh, engineer, uh, uh, School of Engineering professor, Foco Quester. He has been there from the very beginning for me. So we've worked together for, I think, almost seven years now. Um, so uh, I can tell you just last weekend, I had a great time working with one of our graduate students who is a wonderful professionist, Mitch. And he and I borrowed these rock samples <laughs> from the lab at Scripps Institutional Oceanography and then brought them to a recording studio, fashion studio, 
and we listened to the rocks and it was so interesting mm. so beautiful not only rocks we also listened to fossils and they're <laughs> just amazing sound so we are going to do something about that because now we can actually uh listen to these things well, again with the help of technology we use contact microphones to record them and then we're probably going to run analysis of the spectrum of these sounds and figure out why rocks sound so good to human ears <laughs> there's something so sweet about sounds of rocks you know from the you know you, you know the waves coming in from the ocean you hear those pebbles rocking each other why that sound is so soothing for human ears mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. uh, i think they contain beautiful harmonies um and we're going to find out and and that's one step you know in our in our discovery what what we can hear We want to say a huge thank you to Lay for allowing us to share some of his music with you today. Early on with this podcast, we had one of his colleagues at UC San Diego, Anthony Davis, on our show, and he highly recommended Lay and said he was influential to him too. So if you like this episode, please go check out our interview with Anthony Davis and any of the other amazing musicians we've had on our show, including John Foreman of the San Diego rock band Switchfoot. Please also share this episode with anyone who you think might want to hear from such a critically acclaimed composer. Thanks for listening. Bye.